Chapter 8.2 of the 9-11 Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The 9-11 Commission Report. Chapter 8.2. Late Leads. Midyar, Musawi, and KSM. In Chapter 6 we discussed how intelligence agencies successfully detected some of the early travel in the planes operation, picking up the movements of Khalid el-Madar and identifying him, and seeing his travel converge with someone they perhaps could have identified but did not, Nawaf al-Hazmi, as well as with less easily identifiable people such as Khalad and Abu Barah. These observations occurred in December 1999 and January 2000. The trail had been lost in January 2000 without a clear realization that it had been lost and without much effort to pick it up again. Nor had the CIA placed Madar on the State Department's watch list for suspected terrorists so that either an embassy or a port of entry might take note if Madar showed up again. On four occasions in 2001, the CIA, the FBI, or both, had apparent opportunities to refocus on the significance of Hazmi and Midar and reinvigorate the search for them. After reviewing those episodes, we will turn to the handling of the Musawi case and some late leads regarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. January 2001. Identification of Khalid. Almost one year after the original trail had been lost in Bangkok, the FBI and the CIA were working on the investigation of the coal bombing. They learned of the link between a captured conspirator and a person called Khalad. They also learned that Khalad was a senior security official for bin Laden, who had helped direct the bombing. We introduced Khalad in Chapter 5 and returned to his role in the coal bombing in Chapter 6. One of the members of the FBI's investigative team in Yemen realized that he had heard of Khalad before from a joint FBI-CIA source four months earlier. The FBI agent obtained from a foreign government a photo of the person believed to have directed the coal bombing. It was shown to the source, and he confirmed that the man in that photograph was the same Khalid he had described. In December 2000, on the basis of some links associated with Khalid al-Madar, the CIA's bin Laden unit speculated that Khalid and Khalid al-Madar might be one and the same. The CIA asked that a Kuala Lumpur surveillance photo of Midar be shown to the joint source who had identified Khalad. In early January 2001, two photographs from the Kuala Lumpur meeting were shown to the source. One was a known photograph of Midar, the other a photograph of a then unknown subject. The source did not recognize Midar, but he indicated he was 90% certain that the other individual was Khalad. This meant that Khalad and Midar were two different people. It also meant that there was a link between Khalad and Midar, making Midar seem even more suspicious. Yet we found no effort by the CIA to renew the long-abandoned search for Midar or his travel companions. In addition, we found that the CIA did not notify the FBI of this identification. DCI Tenet and Kofer Black testified before Congress's joint inquiry into 9-11 that the FBI had access to this identification from the beginning, but drawing on an extensive record, 
including documents that were not available to the CIA personnel who drafted that testimony, we conclude this was not the case. The FBI's primary coal investigators had no knowledge that Kalad had been in Kuala Lumpur with Medar and others until after the September 11 attacks. Because the FBI had not been informed in January 2000 about Medar's possession of a U.S. visa, it had not then started looking for him in the United States. Because it did not know of the links between Kalad and Medar, it did not start looking for him in January 2001. This incident is an example of how day-to-day -day gaps in information sharing can emerge even when there is mutual goodwill. The information was from a joint FBI-CIA source who spoke essentially no English and whose languages were not understood by the FBI agent on the scene overseas. Issues of travel and security necessarily kept short the amount of time spent with the source. As a result, the CIA officer usually did not translate either questions or answers for his FBI colleague and friend. For interviews without simultaneous translation, the FBI agent on the scene received copies of the reports that the CIA disseminated to other agencies regarding the interviews, but he was not given access to the CIA's internal operational reports, which contained more detail. It was there, in reporting to which FBI investigators did not have access, that information regarding the January 2001 identification of Kalad appeared. The CIA officer does not recall this particular identification, and thus cannot say why it was not shared with his FBI colleague. He might not have understood the possible significance of the new identification. In June 2000, Medar left California and returned to Yemen. It is possible that if, in January 2001, the CIA had resumed its search for him, placed him on the State Department's tip-off watch list, or provided the FBI with the information, he might have been found either before or at the time he applied for a new visa in June 2001, or when he returned to the United States on July 4th. Spring 2001, looking again at Kuala Lumpur. By mid-May 2001, as the threat reports were surging, a CIA official detailed to the International Terrorism Operations Section at the FBI wondered where the attacks might occur. We will call him John. Recalling the episode about the Kuala Lumpur travel of Madar and his associates, John searched the CIA's databases for information regarding the travel. On May 15th, he and an official at the CIA re-examined many of the old cables from early 2000, including the information that Madar had a U.S. visa and that Hazmi had come to Los Angeles on January 15th, 2000. The CIA official who reviewed the cables took no action regarding them. John, however, began a lengthy exchange with a CIA analyst, whom we will call Dave, to figure out what these cables meant. John was aware of how dangerous Kalad was, at one point calling him a major league killer. He concluded that something bad was definitely up. Despite the U.S. links evident in this traffic, John made no effort to determine whether any of these individuals was in the United States. He did not raise that possibility with his FBI counterpart. He was focused on Malaysia. John described the CIA as an agency that tended to play a zone defense. He was worrying solely about Southeast Asia, not the United States. In contrast, he told us, the FBI tends to play man-to-man. -to -man. 
desk officers at the CIA's bin Laden unit did not have cases in the same sense as an FBI agent who works in an investigation from beginning to end. Thus, when the trail went cold after the Kuala Lumpur meeting in January 2000, the desk officer moved on to different things. By the time the March 2000 cable arrived with information that one of the travelers had flown to Los Angeles, the case officer was no longer responsible for follow-up. While several individuals at the bin Laden unit opened the cable when it arrived in March 2000, no action was taken. The CIA's zone defense concentrated on where, not who. Had its information been shared with the FBI, a combination of the CIA's zone defense and the FBI's man-to-man -man approach might have been productive. June 2001, The Meeting in New York John's review of the Kuala Lumpur meeting did set off some more sharing of information, getting the attention of an FBI analyst whom we will call Jane. Jane was assigned to the FBI's coal investigation. She knew that another terrorist involved in that operation, Fahd al Kuso, had traveled to Bangkok in January 2000 to give money to Kalad. Jane and the CIA analyst, Dave, had been working together on coal-related issues. Chasing Cousseau's trail, Dave suggested showing some photographs to FBI agents in New York who were working on the coal case and had interviewed Cousseau. John gave three Kuala Lumpur surveillance pictures to Jane to show to the New York agents. She was told that one of the individuals in the photographs was someone named Khalid al-Madar. She did not know why the photographs had been taken or why the Kuala Lumpur travel might be significant and she was not told that someone had identified Kalad in the photographs. When Jane did some research in a database for intelligence reports, IntelLink, she found the original NSA reports on the planning for the meeting. Because the CIA had not disseminated reports on its tracking of Madar, Jane did not pull up any information about Madar's U.S. visa or about travel to the United States by Hazmi or Madar. Jane, Dave, and an FBI analyst who was on detail to the CIA's bin Laden unit went to New York on June 11th to meet with the agents about the Cole case. Jane brought the surveillance pictures. At some point in the meeting, she showed the photographs to the agents and asked whether they recognized Cuso in any of them. The agents asked questions about the photographs. Why were they taken? Why were these people being followed? Where are the rest of the photographs? The only information Jane had about the meeting, other than the photographs, were the NSA reports that she had found on IntelLink. These reports, however, contained caveats that their contents could not be shared with criminal investigators without the permission of the Justice Department's Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, OIPR. Therefore, Jane concluded that she could not pass on information from those reports to the agents. This decision was potentially significant because the signal's intelligence she did not share linked Madara to a suspected terrorist facility in the Middle East. The agents would have established a link to the suspected facility from their work on the embassy bombings case. This link would have made them very interested in learning more about Madar. The sad irony is that the agents who found the source were being kept from obtaining the fruits of their own work. Dave, the CIA analyst, knew more about the Kuala Lumpur meeting. He knew that Madar possessed a U.S. visa, that his visa application indicated that he intended to travel to New York, that Hazmi had traveled to Los Angeles, and that a source had put Madar in the company of Kalad. No one at the meeting asked him what he knew. He did not volunteer anything. 
He told investigators that as a CIA analyst, he was not authorized to answer FBI questions regarding CIA information. Jane said she assumed that if Dave knew the answers to questions, he would have volunteered them. The New York agents left the meeting without obtaining information that might have started them looking for Madar. Madar had been a weak link in al-Qaeda's operational planning. He had left the United States in June 2000, a mistake KSM realized could endanger the entire plan, for to continue with the operation, Madar would have to travel to the United States again. And unlike other operatives, Madar was not clean. He had jihadist connections. It was just such connections that had brought him to the attention of U.S. officials. Nevertheless, in this case, KSM's fears were not realized. Madar received a new U.S. visa two days after the CIA-FBI meeting in New York. He flew to New York City on July 4th. No one was looking for him. August 2001. The search for Madar and Hazmi begins and fails. During the summer of 2001, John, following a good instinct, but not as part of any formal assignment, asked Mary, an FBI analyst detailed to the CIA's bin Laden unit, to review all the Kuala Lumpur materials one more time. She had been at the New York meeting with Jane and Dave, but had not looked into the issues yet herself. John asked her to do the research in her free time. Mary began her work on July 24th. That day she found the cable reporting that Madar had a visa to the United States. A week later she found the cable reporting that Madar's visa application, what was later discovered to be his first application, listed New York as his destination. On August 21st she located the March 2000 cable that noted with interest that Hazmi had flown to Los Angeles in January 2000. She immediately grasped the significance of this information. Mary and Jane promptly met with an INS representative at FBI headquarters. On August 22nd, the INS told them that Madar had entered the United States on January 15, 2000, and again on July 4, 2001. Jane and Mary also learned that there was no record that Hazmi had left the country since January 2000, and they assumed he had left with Madar in June 2000. They decided that if Madar was in the United States, he should be found. They divided up the work. Mary asked the bin Laden unit to draft a cable, requesting that Madar and Hazmi be put on the tip-off watch list. Both Hazmi and Madar were added to this watch list on August 24th. Jane took responsibility for the search effort inside the United States. As the information indicated that Madar had last arrived in New York, she began drafting what is known as a lead for the FBI's New York field office. A lead relays information from one part of the FBI to another, and requests that a particular action be taken. She called an agent in New York to give him a heads-up on the matter, but her draft lead was not sent until August 28th. Her email told the New York agent that she wanted him to get started as soon as possible, but she labeled the lead as routine, a designation that informs the receiving office that it has 30 days to respond. The agent who received the lead forwarded it to his squad supervisor. That same day, the supervisor forwarded the lead to an intelligence agent to open an intelligence case, an agent who thus was behind the wall, keeping FBI intelligence information from being shared with criminal prosecutors. He also sent it to the cold case agents and an agent who had spent significant time in Malaysia searching for another Khalid, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The suggested goal of the investigation was to locate Madar, 
determine his contacts and reasons for being in the United States, and possibly conduct an interview. Before sending the lead, Jane had discussed it with John, the CIA official on detail to the FBI. She had also checked with the acting head of the FBI's bin Laden unit. The discussion seems to have been limited to whether the search should be classified as an intelligence investigation or as a criminal one. It appears that no one informed higher levels of management in either the FBI or CIA about the case. There is no evidence that the lead or the search for these terrorist suspects was substantively discussed at any level above deputy chief of a section within the counterterrorism division at FBI headquarters. One of the Cole case agents read the lead with interest and contacted Jane to obtain more information. Jane argued, however, that because the agent was designated a criminal FBI agent, not an intelligence FBI agent, the wall kept him from participating in any search for Madar. In fact, she felt he had to destroy his copy of the lead because it contained NSA information from reports that included caveats, ordering that the information not be shared without OIPR's permission. The agent asked Jane to get an opinion from the FBI's National Security Law Unit, NSLU, on whether he could open a criminal case on Madar. Jane sent an email to the Cole case agent explaining that according to the NSLU, the case could be opened only as an intelligence matter, and that if Madar was found, only designated intelligence agents could conduct or even be present at any interview. She appears to have misunderstood the complex rules that could apply to this situation. The FBI agent angrily responded, Whatever has happened to this, someday someone will die, and wall or not, the public will not understand why we were not more effective and throwing every resource we had at certain problems. Let's hope the National Security Law Unit will stand behind their decisions then, especially since the biggest threat to us now, UBL, is getting the most protection. Jane replied that she was not making up the rules. She claimed that they were in the relevant manual, and ordered by the FISA court, and every office of the FBI is required to follow them, including FBI New York. It is now clear that everyone involved was confused about the rules governing the sharing and use of information gathered in intelligence channels. Because Midar was being sought for his possible connection to or knowledge of the coal bombing, he could be investigated or tracked under the existing coal criminal case. No new criminal case was needed for the criminal agent to begin searching for Midar and as NSA had approved the passage of its information to the criminal agent, he could have conducted a search using all available information. As a result of this confusion, the criminal agents who were knowledgeable about al-Qaeda and experienced with criminal investigative techniques, including finding suspects and possible criminal charges, were thus excluded from the search. The search was assigned to one FBI agent, and it was his very first counterterrorism lead, because the lead was routine, he was given 30 days to open an intelligence case and make some unspecified efforts to locate Madar. He started the process a few days later. He checked local New York databases for criminal record and driver's license information and checked the hotel listed on Madar's U.S. entry form. Finally, on September 11th, the agent sent a lead to Los Angeles because Madar had initially arrived in Los Angeles in January 2000. We believe that if more resources had been applied, and a significantly different approach taken, Midar and Hazmi might have been found. They had used their true names in the United States. Still, the investigators would have needed luck as well as skill to find them prior to September 11th, even if such searches had begun as early as August 23rd, 
when the lead was first drafted. Many FBI witnesses have suggested that even if Madar had been found, there was nothing the agents could have done except follow him onto the plains. We believe this is incorrect. Both Hazmi and Madar could have been held for immigration violations or as material witnesses in the coal bombing case. Investigation or interrogation of them, and investigation of their travel and financial activities, could have yielded evidence of connections to other participants in the 9-11 plot. The simple fact of their detention could have derailed the plan. In any case, the opportunity did not arise. Phoenix Memo The Phoenix Memo was investigated thoroughly by the Joint Inquiry and the Department of Justice Inspector General. We will recap it briefly here. In July 2001, an FBI agent in the Phoenix Field Office sent a memo to FBI headquarters and to two agents on international terrorism squads in the New York Field Office, advising of the possibility of a coordinated effort by Osama bin Laden to send students to the United States to attend civil aviation schools. The agent based his theory on the inordinate number of individuals of investigative interest attending such schools in Arizona. The agent made four recommendations to FBI headquarters. To compile a list of civil aviation schools, establish liaison with those schools, discuss his theories about bin Laden with the intelligence community, and seek authority to obtain visa information on persons applying to flight schools. His recommendations were not acted on. His memo was forwarded to one field office. Managers of the Osama bin Laden unit and the Radical Fundamentalist unit at FBI headquarters were addressees, but they did not even see the memo until after September 11th. No managers at headquarters saw the memo before September 11th, and the New York field office took no action. As its author told investigators, the Phoenix memo was not an alert about suicide pilots. His worry was more about a Pan Am Flight 103 scenario in which explosives were placed on an aircraft. The memo's references to aviation training were broad, including aeronautical engineering. If the memo had been distributed in a timely fashion, and its recommendations acted on promptly, we do not believe it would have uncovered the plot. It might well, however, have sensitized the FBI, so that it might have taken the Musawi matter more seriously the next month. Zacharias Musawi On August 15, 2001, the Minneapolis FBI field office initiated an intelligence investigation on Zacharias Musawi. As mentioned in Chapter 7, he had entered the United States in February 2001 and had begun flight lessons at Airman Flight School in Norman, Oklahoma. He resumed his training at the Pan Am International Flight Academy in Egan, Minnesota, starting on August 13th. He had none of the usual qualifications for flight training on Pan Am's Boeing 747 flight simulators. He said he did not intend to become a commercial pilot, but wanted the training as an ego-boosting thing. Musawi stood out because, with little knowledge of flying, he wanted to learn how to take off and land a Boeing 747. The agent in Minneapolis quickly learned that Musawi possessed jihadist beliefs. Moreover, Musawi had $32,000 in a bank account, but did not provide a plausible explanation for this sum of money. He had traveled to Pakistan, but became agitated when asked if he had traveled to nearby countries while in Pakistan. Pakistan was the customary route to the training camps in Afghanistan. He planned to receive martial arts training and intended to purchase a global positioning receiver. The agent also noted that Masawi became extremely agitated whenever he was questioned regarding his religious beliefs. 
the agent concluded that Musawi was an Islamic extremist preparing for some future act in furtherance of radical fundamentalist goals. He also believed Musawi's plan was related to his flight training. Musawi can be seen as an al-Qaeda mistake and a missed opportunity. An apparently unreliable operative, he had fallen into the hands of the FBI. As discussed in Chapter 7, Musawi had been in contact with and received money from Ramzi bin al-Shib. If Musawi had been connected to al-Qaeda, questions should instantly have arisen about a possible al-Qaeda plot that involved piloting airliners, a possibility that had never been seriously analyzed by the intelligence community. The FBI agent who handled the case in conjunction with the INS representative on the Minneapolis Joint Terrorism Task Force suspected that Musawi might be planning to hijack a plane. Minneapolis and FBI headquarters debated whether Musawi should be arrested immediately or surveilled to obtain additional information. Because it was not clear whether Musawi could be imprisoned, the FBI case agent decided the most important thing was to prevent Musawi from obtaining any further training that he could use to carry out a potential attack. As a French national who had overstayed his visa, Musawi could be detained immediately. The INS arrested Musawi on the immigration violation. A deportation order was signed on August 17, 2001. The agents in Minnesota were concerned that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Minneapolis would find insufficient probable cause of a crime to obtain a criminal warrant to search Musawi's laptop computer. Agents at FBI headquarters believed there was insufficient probable cause. Minneapolis, therefore, sought a special warrant under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to conduct the search. We introduced FISA in Chapter 3. To do so, however, the FBI needed to demonstrate probable cause that Musawi was an agent of a foreign power, a demonstration that was not required to obtain a criminal warrant, but was a statutory requirement for a FISA warrant. The case agent did not have sufficient information to connect Musawi to a foreign power, so he reached out for help, in the United States and overseas. The FBI agent's August 18th message requested assistance from the FBI legal attaché in Paris. Musawi had lived in London, so the Minneapolis agent sought assistance from the legal attaché there as well. By August 24th, the Minneapolis agent had also contacted an FBI detailee and a CIA desk officer at the counter-terrorist center about the case. The FBI legal attaché's office in Paris first contacted the French government on August 16th or 17th, shortly after speaking to the Minneapolis case agent on the telephone. On August 22nd and 27th, the French provided information that made a connection between Musawi and a rebel leader in Chechnya, Ibn al-Khattab. This set off a spirited debate between the Minneapolis field office, FBI headquarters, and the CIA as to whether the Chechen rebels and Khattab were sufficiently associated with the terrorist organization to constitute a foreign power for purposes of the FISA statute. FBI headquarters did not believe this was good enough, and its National Security Law Unit declined to submit a FISA application. After receiving the written request for assistance, the legal attaché in London had promptly forwarded it to his counterparts in the British government, hand-delivering the request on August 21st. On August 24th, the CIA also sent a cable to London and Paris regarding subjects involved in suspicious 747 flight training that described Musawi as a possible suicide hijacker. On August 28th, the CIA sent a request for information to a different service of the British government. 
This communication warned that Musawi might be expelled to Britain by the end of August. The FBI office in London raised the matter briefly with British officials as an aside, after a meeting about a more urgent matter on September 3rd, and sent the British service a written update on September 5th. The case was not handled by the British as a priority amid a large number of other terrorist-related inquiries. On September 4th, the FBI sent a teletype to the CIA, the FAA, the Customs Service, the State Department, the INS, and the Secret Service summarizing the known facts regarding Musawi. It did not report the case agent's personal assessment that Musawi planned to hijack an airplane. It did contain the FAA's comments that it was not unusual for Middle Easterners to attend flight training schools in the United States. Although the Minneapolis agents wanted to tell the FAA from the beginning about Musawi, FBI headquarters instructed Minneapolis that it could not share the more complete report the case agent had prepared for the FAA. The Minneapolis supervisor sent the case agent in person to the local FAA office to fill in what he thought were gaps in the FBI headquarters teletype. No FAA actions seemed to have been taken in response. There was substantial disagreement between Minneapolis agents and FBI headquarters as to what Misawi was planning to do. In one conversation between a Minneapolis supervisor and a headquarters agent, the latter complained that Minneapolis's visa request was couched in a manner intended to get people spun up. The supervisor replied that was precisely his intent. He said he was trying to keep someone from taking a plane and crashing into the World Trade Center. The headquarters agent replied that this was not going to happen, and that they did not know if Misawi was a terrorist. There is no evidence that either FBI Acting Director Picard or Assistant Director for Counterterrorism Dale Watson was briefed on the Misawi case prior to 9-11. Michael Rollins, the FBI Assistant Director heading the Bureau's International Terrorism Operations Section, ITOS, recalled being told about Misawi in two passing hallway conversations, but only in the context that he might be receiving telephone calls from Minneapolis, complaining about how headquarters was handling the matter. He never received such a call. Although the acting special agent in charge of Minneapolis called the ITOS supervisors to discuss the Misawi case on August 27th, he declined to go up the chain of command at FBI headquarters and call Rollins. On August 23rd, DCI Tenet was briefed about the Misawi case in a briefing titled, Islamic Extremist Learns to Fly. Tenet was also told that Musawi wanted to learn to fly a 747, paid for his training in cash, was interested to learn the doors do not open in flight, and wanted to fly a simulated flight from London to New York. He was told that the FBI had arrested Musawi because of a visa overstay, and that the CIA was working the case with the FBI. Tenet told us that no connection to al-Qaeda was apparent to him at the time. Seeing it as an FBI case, he did not discuss the matter with anyone at the White House or the FBI. No connection was made between Musawi's presence in the United States and the threat reporting during the summer of 2001. On September 11th, after the attacks, the FBI office in London renewed their appeal for information about Musawi. In response to U.S. requests, the British government supplied some basic biographical information about Musawi. The British government informed us that it also immediately tasked intelligence collection facilities for information about Musawi. On September 13th, the British government received new, sensitive intelligence that Musawi had attended an al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan. It passed this intelligence to the United States on the same day. 
Had this information been available in late August 2001, the Massawi case would almost certainly have received intense high-level attention. The FBI also learned after 9-11 that the Millennium terrorist Rassam, who by 2001 was cooperating with investigators, recognized Musawi as someone who had been in the Afghan camps. As mentioned above, before 9-11, the FBI agents in Minneapolis had failed to persuade supervisors at headquarters that there was enough evidence to seek a FISA warrant to search Musawi's computer hard drive and belongings. Either the British information or the Rassam identification would have broken the logjam. A maximum U.S. effort to investigate Musawi conceivably could have unearthed his connections to Ben al-Shib. Those connections might have brought investigators to the core of the 9-11 plot. The Ben al-Shib connection was recognized shortly after 9-11, though it was not an easy trail to find. Discovering it would have required quick and very substantial cooperation from the German government, which might well have been difficult to obtain. However, publicity about Musawi's arrest and a possible hijacking threat might have derailed the plot. With time, the search for Madar and Hazmi and the investigation of Musawi might also have led to a breakthrough that would have disrupted the plot. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed Another late opportunity was presented by a confluence of information regarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed received by the intelligence community in the summer of 2001. The possible links between KSM, Musawi, and an individual only later identified as Ramzi bin al-Shib would remain undiscovered, however. Although we readily equate KSM with al-Qaeda today, this was not the case before 9-11. KSM, who had been indicted in January 1996 for his role in the Manila air plot, was seen primarily as another freelance terrorist associated with Ramzi Youssef. Because the links between KSM and bin Laden or al-Qaeda were not recognized at the time, responsibility for KSM remained in the small Islamic extremist branch of the counter-terrorist center, not in the bin Laden unit. Moreover, because KSM had already been indicted, he became targeted for arrest. In 1997, the counter-terrorist center added a renditions branch to help find wanted fugitives. Responsibility for KSM was transferred to this branch, which gave the CIA a man-to-man -man focus, but it was not an analytical unit. When subsequent information came, more critical for analysis than for tracking, no unit had the job of following up on what the information might mean. For example, in September 2000, a source had reported that an individual named Khalid al-Sheikh al-Balushi was a key lieutenant in al-Qaeda. Al-Balushi means from Baluchistan, and KSM is from Baluchistan. Recognizing the possible significance of this information, the bin Laden unit sought more information. When no information was forthcoming, the bin Laden unit dropped the matter. When additional pieces of the puzzle arrived in the spring and summer of 2001, they were not put together. The first piece of the puzzle concerned some intriguing information associated with a person known as Mukhtar, that the CIA had begun analyzing in April 2001. The CIA did not know who Mukhtar was at the time, only that he associated with al-Qaeda Lieutenant Abu Zubaydah, and that, based on the nature of the information, he was evidently involved in planning possible terrorist activities. The second piece of the puzzle was some alarming information regarding KSM. On June 12, 2001, a CIA report said that Khaled, was actively recruiting people to travel outside Afghanistan, 
including to the United States, where colleagues were reportedly already in the country to meet them, to carry out terrorist-related activities for bin Laden. CIA headquarters presumed from the details of the reporting that this person was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. In July, the same source was shown a series of photographs and identified a photograph of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the Khaled he had previously discussed. The final piece of the puzzle arrived at the CIA's bin Laden unit on August 28th in a cable reporting that KSAM's nickname was Mukhtar. No one made the connection to the reports about Mukhtar that had been circulated in the spring. This connection might also have underscored concern about the June reporting that KSM was recruiting terrorists to travel, including to the United States. Only after 9-11 would it be discovered that Mukhtar slash KSM had communicated with a phone that was used by bin al-Shib, and that bin al-Shib had used the same phone to communicate with Musawi, as discussed in Chapter 7. As in the Musawi situation already described, the links to Ben al-Shib might not have been an easy trail to find and would have required substantial cooperation from the German government. But time was short and running out. Time runs out. As Tennant told us, the system was blinking red during the summer of 2001. Officials were alerted across the world. Many were doing everything they possibly could to respond to the threats. Yet no one working on these late leads in the summer of 2001 connected the case in his or her inbox to the threat reports agitating senior officials and being briefed to the president. Thus, these individual cases did not become national priorities. As the CIA supervisor John told us, no one looked at the bigger picture. No analytic work foresaw the lightning that could connect the thundercloud to the ground. We see little evidence that the progress of the plot was disturbed by any government action. The U.S. government was unable to capitalize on mistakes made by Al-Qaeda. Time ran out. End of chapter 8.2 Recording by Leanne Howlett